Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. chapter 12 is where we're at. Click, flip. Uh, We'll pick up where we left off. There is context to what we're doing. Jesus has entered the temple. This is kind of his final trip to Jerusalem. So he's come up there and he's going to be met by the whole group this time. Priests, scribes, and elders. So civic leaders, religious leaders, legal leaders, and law authorities. Because last time he was in the temple, he was cleaning house. And he kicked out all the money changers and got them out of there. So that's an important context as we get into today. It's also uh, Palm Sunday, not for us, but for Jesus. This is Palm Sunday. And so we're going into this kind of Passover week. Uh, During this Passover week, they're supposed to celebrate this lamb that is the sacrifice for their family, an actual little lamb that was inspected and gone over. They inspect over a quarter million lambs in in the first century at Passover and the Temple Mount. In the inspection of them, they had a tradition of refusing most of them, so you had to buy your lamb from the Temple people with the approved lamb price. And so this was kind of a scam that they had. And then they're going to kill them all on Friday. Friday is the big day in Passover. You kill all the lambs. At this period in history, Josephus reports that the blood flowing out of the Temple Mount was a river of blood, is how he described it. And it would flow out of the Temple Mount, down into the Kidron Valley, into a place called Gehenna, which had ever-burning fires, which was their trash pit. And it's where they threw all their garbage. Important context. They question Jesus' authority, and what's happening here is he's showing the audience that they are not able as a priesthood to answer his questions, and that's not a good thing. The parable that we're going to start with today is immediately after they questioned his authority. Whose authority do you do this on? So he takes this role as a teacher, and he teaches them a lesson, flipping the role of the priest and the visitor to the temple. And so he responds to their question of authority by pointing out not authority, but ownership. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones. They wounded him in the head, and they sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed him. And many others, beating some and killing some, therefore still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Really, the vine dressers and the son are both serving the same authority. There's an owner that we have to talk about. So the difference between the servants and the son when it comes to authority is not much, right? They both are coming on the authority of the owner, but they're coming with different degrees of authority. 
because one is a paid hired servant. Another might be someone that's very precious. So the point of being beloved in verse six is an important point. Jesus is using a common situation. In the first century, tenant farming had taken over. So everyone owning their own plot of land had economically gone away at this point. Most farms acted like this. So he's bringing up an extremely common situation. The beating of the servants is not the common part. That's the part in the story that would strike you. So the vine dressing priests do not have authority over the vineyard. They're the caretakers. So when they come and they say, on whose authority are you doing these things? He's shifting the idea or shifting the conversation. Obviously, he's making a claim to ownership, not just authority. And that's the important, I think, what he's doing here. So we're going to get into some of the Old Testament. We're going to really unpack some of this and get into it a little bit. Uh, Jesus is paraphrasing in this story a common and well-known image of Israel, but he's putting a context to it. If you go to Isaiah chapter 5, I'm going to read you a little bit from there. Now I will sing my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard and in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out of the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it. You hear the, the comparisons to Jesus' story? And also he made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between you and me, my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? For Isaiah, the whole point is God made the vineyard and the vineyard is Israel. And this vineyard was given every advantage. They were given the law through Moses. They were given the prophets through all of them. And they were given warning after warning after warning. And they were told to do this idea of living by God's law. And in doing that, they'd be a light to the whole, the whole planet. That was the plan. The image then is one of love. There's, again, in verse 1 of that Isaiah passage, you heard, beloved, beloved, beloved. And Jesus uses the same word, his son, the beloved son. That the idea of the vine dresser is that he's planting it, growing it, caring for it, but he does all of that out of love. So when Jesus frames the Old Testament, he's framing it as God being a God of love and caring about and wanting this vine vineyard to produce. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. The whole purpose of Israel was because God loved these people. And he wanted to love them in such a way that the whole world would see what love looks like. These images of love are really important to God. To God. When Jesus tells the story, he talks about putting a hedge around it. There's also this image of protection. In the, in the passage Jesus tells, God kept Israel for centuries, despite the fact that they were wild grapes. And they were doing whatever they wanted to do and they were hard to manage. The vine dressers are in leadership of Israel, all of them, and the vineyard is Israel. So he's talking to them and they're saying, by whose authority are you coming here asking for wines? Fruit, some kind of fruit coming out of the temple system. Who are you to do that? It also, Jesus also says, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. Only one reference to a wine vat in the entire Old Testament which is interesting. It's in Haggai. It's a, it's, it's a prophecy from Haggai. And he's talking about the desire of all nations, that Israel would be something that all nations would want in building a glorious temple. And then, and then Haggai says this, tell me if this doesn't sound really familiar to what Jesus is talking about. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephes, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were only 20. 
I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, and you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Is the seed still in the barn as yet the vine, the fig tree, and the pomegranate, the olive tree, have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. See what Jesus is doing here? And don't miss that we just got done withering the fig tree that was supposed to bear fruit and it didn't. So he's coming up into the temple talking about this vineyard, which is bringing up all these prophecies that these scribes and Pharisees would have been learning since they were 10. They would have known these stories. And when Jesus brings up the vineyard, it's hearkening the, the fig tree of chapter 11 and now the vineyard of chapter 12. He's talking about an entire system that isn't bearing fruit. There's nothing good about it. The servants then are prophets from, from, the, from the godly history of Israel. Um, they got taunted. You had Saul going after David. You had Ahab killing hundreds of prophets throughout his lifetime and Jezebel. So they go after these things. Verse 5, and again he sent another and they killed him and many others. The owner was patient, loving, protective, patient and waiting for this to happen. But it becomes a pattern of time over and over. The keepers start to act with impunity. The first time they kill somebody, they just kill a servant. And then it gets easier and easier to do what they're doing, to have money changers in the temple courtyard, to set up, you know, a, a bookstore right when you walk into the temple so they can make more profit, you know, to have, you know, all sorts of money-making schemes going on around them. It just gets easier and easier the more they do it. So then they become accustomed to rejecting God's law by rejecting these messengers, and they think they're okay because judgment doesn't come. That's a dangerous place to be. There is justice to be held. If they're killing the servants, there is justice to be had. There's a consequence for killing people. The law says if you kill people, you will be killed. You'll be executed. So there's a, there's a mistake that they're making when it comes to authority that getting away with sin is actually authority. And I think people do this all the time today. They do things and they get away with it and they think, well, I'm in charge of what I'm doing. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. Then Jesus says in verse 6, this is the heir, come let us kill him. This is foolish thinking. They're they're inflating their self-importance and putting themselves over the heir, but killing the heir doesn't change the ownership. It just ticks off the owner. So everything they're doing here is in, because they've imagined to themselves that they're in control of the situation because they don't see the owner on hand. Sound familiar? And so the more time that goes by, instead of repenting, the more they get, the more they get arrogant about what they're doing. Verse 6 is also a public declaration that Jesus is comparing himself to the Son of God, the Son of the owner of it all. And he's doing it through a parable which would really infuriate them because they can't get him for actually making that comparison. Um, Yet, they will in a moment. So they took him and killed him. And he's also, again, predicting the fact that there's going to be a killing that's happened. At this point, Jesus hasn't been killed. But he's, he's pointing out in the story that that's actually happening. And because this is a story, it's a warning to everybody that's listening. So when they kill him, I hope they remember the story. Either accept the son or the owner is going to be done with you. This is the last chance, Israel. Last chance, priesthood. Last chance, temple system. God made them to bear fruit, and the fruit of humanity is not happening in the temple courtyard. There's trees that are going to wither on this temple mount, and there's a temple that's going to wither. If they reject Jesus, he's going to make the whole temple mount go away. And God's going to send nobody else to them. This sun coming is the last chance you get. 
This is a large reason why in Christian theology, we have a different view of what prophets are than what the Jewish people had views of what prophets are. Because Jesus was the last and final word from God that we record in the New Testament. And we process that and we make sense of it through the epistles, but essentially we haven't had any additions for 2,000 years. Verse 9, consequences. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. <laughs> so what will the owner do? That's a good question, but it's an obvious question. And they know by the law, because they've killed somebody, they deserve to be executed. So the vineyards think they're going to be inheriting things, but by the law, they don't inherit anything here. They just inherit a consequence. And the priests are in the same boat. The crowd is likely thinking, man, that owner is going to be ticked off. They just killed his beloved son. He's coming for vengeance is even what I think the disciples are thinking when the story is getting told. That owner's coming back and he's kicking butt and taking names. The disciples haven't been taught to pray in chapter 11, and they were also taught to forgive in 11 verse 26. Jesus just got done teaching them that when they're facing this kind of aggression, they're supposed to pray and forgive, not go for vengeance. So what are they thinking right now? Maybe the disciples are thinking, oh my goodness, maybe the vine dresser's owner is supposed to just pray about this situation. Maybe the, vine, the vine, vineyard's owner should forgive everything and let it all go. And Listen to this. Only the Holy Spirit reveals this, I think. Instead of immediate vengeance on the owners of the vineyard, the owner in love is going to, instead of getting vengeance on them, he's going to simply raise his son from the dead. Because that's also a solution. It's just not a solution we think of in the flesh. Because if the son's been raised for the dead, then he can actually forgive because there's no murder that needs to be held account for. Think about this. So the claim here is not just the vineyard. The claim is the entire planet Earth and that entire place that God made. He's going to then deal with the vine dressers. He will come and he will bring justice to the vine dressers, but the first order of business is going to be to raise the sun from the dead. So he's going to come and destroy the vine dressers. Judgment is coming and it's foolish to think that it's not. Give the vineyard to other people. Further revelation about the church age that's coming. The Mosaic priesthood will not have the vineyard anymore. The Holy Spirit's going to move through a church. I think that's really exciting when you see it happening. There's going to be Gentile vine dressers. Here's the inspection part. Jesus started in chapter 11 to be questioned through an inspection process. Authority was based on this context. Authority, if you think about it, authority is always going to be based on the context that it's in. For instance, if I'm on a basketball court, my authority as a player will have everything to do with if I can get a ball through a hoop in a quick, easy way, or get it to people who can. If I'm in the wild, my authority is based on brute strength, Lord of the Flies, right? If I'm in a civics environment, my authority is based on how well I know the law and how well I can navigate that. If I'm in a work environment, my authority is based on how productive I am or how many people I have working for me that are productive, and that gives authority. If I'm in the temple courtyard, my authority is based on my ability to navigate truth. So when Jesus tells this story, he uses God's word clearly and directly in a way that when he asks that question, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
everybody within earshot has clarity around this issue of authority. It's really good teaching. And in doing that, he's, I think, taking the authority of the priesthood in a very complex way. In this context, where the temple is, the priests are supposed to give clarity, not confusion. You're supposed to walk away from a teaching knowing something better than when you walked in. And that's the hope. That's what the Holy Spirit does. All world religions, except for four, are based on a philosophy that can be debated. Right? And it's generally people's opinions as to what truth is. All of them act that way. All world religions, except for one, (laughs) are based on a person that came up with that theory, and then they died. There's only one world religion where someone is claiming truth that did not die. That's why the resurrection is such an important idea. They're losing their authority based on the fact that they are the finite beings, and religion is about an infinite conversation. And therefore, they, the authority has gone. On this point alone, Christianity or Judaism into Christianity becomes the only religion that has an authority of truth. Because you have somebody who didn't die. So, verse 10, when he says, have you not even read? He's questioning they've read. (laughs) This is, again, they're trying to ask who has authority, and then he asks a question like, haven't you even read this? In other words, you don't clearly have authority here. You don't even understand what's happening right now. Verses 10 through 11 are a song. They come from the Psalms. In fact, they come from a particular psalm. And you put a note in your Bible, put Psalm 118. What he's quoting there in verse 10 is from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. It's talking about the coming of the Messiah. And it's part of what they would have been singing when he came up the hill the other day and they were putting down palm branches. It's one of the what they call the songs of ascension. So on Passover, when you come into the temple and you're walking up to Jerusalem, they stagger the steps unevenly. So you have to go super slow. And part of that slowness is that you're singing songs as you come up to the temple. So the whole city sounds like music. And when we get to Christmas and we sing the same 20 Christmas carols every year, same thing. Psalm 118 is one of the same songs they would have sung every year. So when he says, have you not even read? They just heard this song yesterday. I mean, he's really quite like, do you even not even know what we sing every Passover? So in this sense of questioning this, he's questioning that this is what the Bible says. He's citing the word of God as he's getting into this throwdown with the priests. The same psalm that they're at. This is part of what they would be getting into as they, they do. Everyone in the audience would understand this. The next line of the song, and I like doing this. He's quoting these two lines about the stone that gets rejected. Obviously, the cornerstone also connects back to that Haggai thing we just read. But if you read the next two lines of the song, Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Sound familiar? We still sing this song. And then it says, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And then this, God is the Lord. It brings a connection. It's a song they sing every year. So they're blessing somebody that actually comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you out of the house of the Lord, the temple. And then God is the Lord. And so when, when Jesus is using this song in relation to himself and his authority, He's saying that not only is he the son, he's also the Lord himself. And he's pointing them at a song that makes messianic claims about God himself coming to be the king of the people. So who's the triumphant Lord? Oh yeah, that's God himself. 
And the song they've been singing for 800 years comes back and they're doing it like, oh my goodness. Problem is he doesn't look like what they think he should look like. He doesn't talk, he comes from Nazareth. He has a Nazareth accent. He doesn't sound like what they think he should sound like. But man, he keeps speaking truth and it keeps making sense over and over and over again. So whose authority did Jesus come in? He sings them a holiday song to answer the question. This is, and I wonder if he even sang it, right? Have you not even read? And then he starts kind of singing it in the tune. Or he started with those first two lines, but the rest of the audience is singing the next two lines in their head. Like, this is just great teaching. He leaves it there. To reject a stone, the stone the builders rejected, to reject a stone is to not use the stone. And this is really kind of thing. Here comes the Son of God, and they don't bother to use him. And there's going to be a new system built. And I just think this is amazing. We live in the church age, and to think how amazing the church age is, as to the God of the universe having this loosely coupled system throughout the planet, and we all move on the same spirit of God everywhere around the earth. You can meet people that don't even speak your language, but when you know that they're Christians and they're on fire for Christ, there's an instant connection even with people that don't speak the same language. I can't wait to where God brings us together where we can understand one another again. And in some instances, he does with tongues. This is, the, this is to say the temple cornerstone is going to be replaced. The chief cornerstone is the biggest, thickest, massivest one. Here's the other thing that's important about the cornerstone. It's the first one that gets laid in a building. And the laying of that stone has to be precise because every other stone is going to be off it. It has to be level in all directions. You have to be able to inspect it and look at it from any direction, and it's perfect. If you mess up the cornerstone, the whole building gets messed up. So as Jesus does this, he's going to be laying this directional block, support block, a block of leveling, and it's named. When they built buildings and they put a cornerstone in, they would engrave something on the cornerstone. Frankly, we still do this. Go downtown St. Paul, and you can usually find the cornerstone on those older buildings, and it's engraved. There's a title that's put there. And in this case, that title is Jesus, Cornerstone, 83 or whatever. So they're going to kill him, they're going to throw him out, and he's going to rise to become the cornerstone of the church. A cornerstone that got thrown out was usually thrown out because the stone wasn't perfect. And again, this is an inspection day at the temple. You might bring a cornerstone up, but if it's imperfect in any way, you got to toss it out. And it's too big to be used for one of the other stones. You, you'd even carve it down, maybe use it for something else. Israel wanted a king. They needed better priests. They needed a prophet. Jesus is taking the authority back from all three of them. He's the rock of our salvation. We use that phrase all the time. He's the firm foundation on which our, our, our salvation is built. He's the mover of mountains, chapter 11. We ask him for things, he does things. He's going to shatter the false, false authority of not only the Temple Mount, but all of the world's empires. You think Rome is massive and, and 800 years of Pax Romana? They're going to become Italians pretty soon, right? The Vikings are going to become Swedes, Right? The mighty Norse are going to become Norwegians, right? This is what Christ is going to come in and, and absolutely shift empires to be different. He's going to change them from the inside out, from the heart out. 
Daniel 2.45, yes, I eavesdrop on the girls' Bible study. For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known that the king, what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. No human is going to make that cornerstone. None. And that cornerstone is going to devastate the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the clay, the silver. It's going to just shatter all of those and take them and, and absolutely devastate them. Verse 11, this was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. It's just amazing. The, it was, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. God does it himself and puts it together. So again, the Old, Old Testament perfectly lays this out. And you know what? It's marvelous. The Messiah is the central premise of the entire Old Testament. It's why we study it on Sunday nights, chapter by chapter, because we want to know what it says. Jesus is the entire focus of the New Testament. It's a conversation about him. Let's note how marvelous the word of God is and this established thing of God. The Messiah is there. There's 66 books in the Bible, 40 different authors. The Old Testament, the law, the history, and the books of wisdom, no prophetic errors whatsoever. Over 2,000 years. That's pretty marvelous. Julius Caesar, if you want to look at other texts in history, um, the writings of Julius Caesar are, there's 251 copies the f- earliest one we have was 950 years after Julius Caesar. So that's 950 years between when we think it was written and when we have a copy of it. Herodotus, who I quote all the time, 109 ancient copies of that book. The earliest one we have is a, is a record from 1,400 years after Herodotus was written. The closest document in the world is the Iliad. The Iliad, we have, have over 1,800 copies of it. Tons of Iliad copies. The Greeks really like this book. The earliest copy we have of the Iliad is 400 years after the events that were recorded in that book. So when you look at the New Testament, it's within a lifetime. There are over 5,000 copies that we have from within a lifetime of Jesus. The earliest um, copies there are are at a time when first-person witnesses could argue and debate with what's had. Not 400, 800, 1400 years after the fact, but people were alive that could debate the events when it was written. Yet we have no record of major contradictions or debates of, of the basic events of the New Testament. It spread widely. There was copies in, all over the place. The Dead Sea Scrolls, if you want to look at the Old Testament, 1940s, they dig up, they find this old dried out thing, and without the humidity, those texts were still there. They pull out these scrolls that were 800 years older than the existing copies with virtually no differences between them, which is a record of 800 years of faithful scribing of that document, which you can take on pretty good historical evidence that they were probably faithful even before that, right up to the times that they happened. No other book... This is marvelous, and it should be marvelous in our eyes. This is amazing. So when people start critiquing the Bible because they've had a year of Bible classes, that's embarrassing. That's human arrogance at its worst, right? You're talking about a book that, is, that has been under more scrutiny than any other book and has absolutely held up to that scrutiny. The best they can do is come up with a typo. Like major differences of dating between Kings and Chronicle can be easily explained. Whether or not the, the whale that ate Noah was a boy or a girl, I really don't care. 
Like we're just talking about major, major historicity, reliability, and confirmability in this book. It's marvelous. It should be marvelous in our eyes, what we're, we're holding in our hands. Verse 11, this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. No human built this system. That's the claim. Here's an entire city hearing the plan of God. It actually is going to happen in days. He predicts that they're going to kill him, and he predicts that he's going to rise again, and then does it. He'd be a footnote in history if he was some guy that claimed to rise from the dead and then didn't. But that's not the case at all. To toss out these coming chapters of death and resurrection is to toss out a gem of human history for absolutely no historical reason. We have four, that's why we have four Gospels. The Iliad only has one account. Where or who do we give authority to in our life? We like to say the authority comes from the Word of God, and that's why. Because the Word of God has more authority in our life than anything else. So where do you put your hope? Do you put your hope in the Word of God, which is marvelous? Or do you put your hope in Stephen Hawking's or Michael Hitchens because they had bad coffee today? Like, honestly, it's not even comparable. It's embarrassingly not comparable. And those are smart guys, but they're so smart they've deluded themselves. This is the Lord's doing. It's not the temple. They didn't build the temple. It's salvation. That's the whole point. It's an image of this. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's been accomplished, Matthew 5.18. That's what Jesus teaches. It's all part of the plan. He's doing a work and it's absolutely perfect in all its levels and it goes way beyond any human lifespan. Jesus is going to quote throughout this testing, he's going to quote all three major sections of the Old Testament. And I'm going to just leave that to you to research and figure out. But he quotes the history, the law, the histories, and the prophets. And the books of wisdom, if you want to count those, he also gets into that. But not the priests. They don't quote the word of God. They just reject Jesus. They get this beautiful teaching from the word of God, and he's quoting the Old Testament like he wrote it. They don't repent. They reject him. They want to keep testing the Messiah. Their anger and their hearts just keep getting sicker and sicker and sicker. It goes the wrong direction. Today, millions of people know exactly what the claim of Jesus is. I don't think we have a lack of people not knowing who Jesus is. World over, very few populations have not actually heard of Jesus at this point. The problem isn't that. People are fully aware of the claims of Jesus. What they're not doing is repenting. They're not changing. Verse 12, we'll keep going with our chapter. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them, so they left him and went away. They fully know the parables about him. Like, were they confused? The, Mark wants us to know they absolutely knew this parable was about them. They understood the Old Testament references that we just went through. They got all of it. Jesus, they're absolutely fuming. They don't repent, they reject, and then they're going to attack. The idea of marvel is the key too. They just got a lesson in wisdom by applying all of the Old Testament and applying those sections. The next one's going to be a law question straight out of the Torah. But these, these people just got learned. And they're the rabbis. They're the people that are supposed to know better. But they're weasels and they're cowards. So they left him and went away. They go into hiding. This is the thing with sin, is sin loves to hide. It doesn't love to be out in the open. Think of gossip, how quickly it evaporates when you just go talk right to that person. They're like cockroaches. They like hiding in the dark. 
you know, you, we'd go into houses and clean them out sometimes and you'd open up the kitchen cupboards, you'd bring light in there and you'd see little bugs. And the first thing the bugs want to do is go back to the darkness, back where they don't have to face truth. And that's exactly what they do. When they left them and went away, it's like they're not doing their job. Either Jesus is wrong and they should be kicking them out of the temple, taking charge of their temple, or if he's right, they should be repenting and following him. They don't do either. They just run away. It's scary. It's like they're skittering off to their dark places. They act in fear when God has told them to be strong and courageous. And I think this is one of those things, the toughest thing in our life, to act in truth instead of fear. In all of our contexts and all of our settings. I liked your story about school. Like just acting in truth and telling the truth to people. Jesus lets them go. And I think this is where he applies what he taught them back in chapter 11. Notice that Jesus doesn't attack. He defends, but he doesn't assault. So he just they just went running off like little bugs. And Jesus just goes right on to talk about his next thing. He's just not going to lose sleep over it. He doesn't seek vengeance. And I'd like to think he just said a little prayer for them as they left. Oh, we wish them well. So the next one, verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Verse 13 should stand out in that Pharisees and Herodians are on opposite sides. They don't agree with each other. They hate each other. Herodians are people that support and are advocating for Rome. Herod was the, the leader of the area for Rome. So when you're a Herodian, it means you back, you support Rome's authority. We like Rome. They build roads. They made a nice coliseum. Uh, they brought in a good football team. You know, Rome's been good for our community. They keep law and order on the streets. So you got Herodians, and they're hanging out with Pharisees. That's not a, a nice combination. But they go right to a hot-button issue. This is what evil does. We're going to need a lesson in evil today and tonight. Evil, so now it's on. He just had an authority discussion and he just showed them that and they went running away. But now they try to catch him in his words. The word catch there in the Greek is a gruo. It's only use in any other context is for hunting. It's to pursue something eagerly or go after a wild animal. They think Jesus needs to be trapped like, you, like a hunter would trap an animal that's out of control. And so it uses this word. The heart's really deceitful, and we're going to see the worst of it here, but they should know a few things. They should know that this testing that they're doing is actually supporting the prophetic movement that's going on here. Jeremiah 13, 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake you should be ashamed, and that they depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. If Jesus is the Messiah, running away from him was not the right thing. Jeremiah 17, 15. Behold, they say to me, where's the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Jesus has been telling them the word of the Lord. Let them be confounded that persecute me. Let me not be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but not let me be dismayed. Bring upon them in the day of evil and destroy them with the double destruction. I don't know what double destruction is. But if God's doing destruction, I don't even want to know what double destruction is. This is a bad situation because they're coming at this guy. They know, but they don't believe that it's the day of the Lord. They understand it. It was clocked out from Daniel, but they don't believe it. They don't believe Jesus is the guy. So they're deceived vine dressers. Their hearts have led them astray, and now we just get this evil fruit. Now they're trying to trap him and catch him. And by bringing in the Romans, they're going to say, this guy's out of control under Roman law because he's claimed king, priest, prophet. So that king thing, maybe Herod would have an issue with. 
Maybe his triumphant entry, we need to get this guy because Rome will take care of him. Because they can't take care of him because they can't get him to say anything that's contrary to the word of God. He just keeps quoting scriptures at them. So they're out of, they're out of ammo. When they came to him, they said, teacher, we know that you are true. Again, truth is the authority piece. And care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I might see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Second time. Pharisees and the Herodians, like honestly, if they're trying to get Rome to kill him. So arguably this is the first example of cancel culture. They want to take this guy and catch him in his words and then eliminate him from conversation. In doing this, they're bringing the taxes question. So this is a money one. We'll get into that today. Let me lead with their intro. Teacher, we know that you're true. Evil loves to come really nice at the outset. Because they don't, if you, if you tell an animal that it's about to get trapped, then it runs from the trap. But if you put a little, like, sweet, nice something in the middle of the trap, the animal will go into it. So evil thinking like a predator wants to, like, be smooth and, and, and sidle up to you at first. Hey, I love what you're doing. I think this is all great. Just wait for the butt to come. Wait for that other shoe to drop. Because this is how evil operates. They call him teacher, yet they're not listening to his teachings. They say that we know you are true, yet they don't believe or act on that truth. They're lying through their teeth. It's really evil. So <laughs> if it's true, they should be following Jesus. If it's false, then they're liars, and they, then Jesus should be taken out and killed. At the same time, they just called him te teacher, inadvertently giving him public authority. And I think this is part of evil, too. Evil doesn't know how to—it doesn't understand the spiritual side of the discussion. Spiritually, they just called him teacher in the temple courtyard ascribing authority to him, though in mockery, but yet in word and in truth and in law, they just ascribed authority to him. I don't know, maybe inadvertently they did it. So flattery and pressure is a typical kind of deception. We'll give you lots of flattery, but then we need you to do something right now, right here. Notice they give him a binary question. Evil does this too. Well, what about this or this? You know, did Jesus command people to kill people in the Old Testament? Yes or no? Yes or, and they ask you this binary question. Um, so, and he says, so they say that they start with flattery and pressure, and then it moves into this. Um, it says, you care about no one. That's an odd thing. Some of you even snickered when we read that. This is not to say that he's not worried what others think of him. It is to say that he's bold and brave. You'll say whatever is true, even if the Herodians are here listening to what you say. We know that you'll do this. They're trying to define Jesus by saying he cares about no one and lure him into an answer. This is part of evil's tactic too. Well, here's who you are. This is what I see you to be. And instead of dealing with the issues that Jesus is talking about, they try to define him for the crowd and for him himself. So this idea of ascribing a definition to other people is an extremely manipulative kind of tactic that gets used in conversations. You care about no one. Also, here's the thing. This is a total lie, right? Right. Jesus may not worry about what others think, but he does care about people. 
So they're twisting it just a little bit. In fact, he's healed people. He's fed thousands. He's had three years of ministry where all he's done is love people. So to be up and say, you don't care what people think. Well, I don't know that that's entirely true, but they just keep going. You don't regard the person of men. So you don't care what people's titles are. You're wild. You'll just say anything anywhere and no matter what. Well, there's some truth in that. Yes, Jesus will. But he's also been artful with how he says things. He's told parables. He doesn't try to antagonize. He's trying to teach. So we look at this and it comes with an assumption that regarding the person of men is an obligation of humanity. This is an odd assumption to make. They're framing it in their own terms. So you don't regard the person of men comes with the assumption that we should regard the person of men. We should be doing that. They're not saying that as a compliment, I don't think. Maybe they are. Instead of to not regard people, it can be done in two different ways. It can be done in rudeness or it can be done with respect. I respect you, but I'm not going to bow to you. But they're assuming that every human being has to bow to people. The last debate was about authority. Okay, you don't bow to people. So you answer this question about taxes. They think they're going to get them right in front of the Herodians. Jesus' response, I think, is interesting because he deals with all three of those situations. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? It's a, it's a legal question, and it should be tested against the Old Testament. He should use the Old Testament to answer, because he used the Torah specifically to answer a legal question. They think it's the perfect question because the Jewish people hated the tax. They hated this thing. It was a heavy tax. You could even argue it was straight-up theft. Like, the Romans were like a giant mob. Like, the mob mentality came from Roman rule right? You run your business and we'll make sure you're safe. And if you don't want to pay, then you won't be safe because we'll be your problem, right? This was Roman rule. It was very effective. We can imagine their smug look when they ask this question going, we got him. Or as David said, those people that say, aha, aha, right? We got you now. Here's your question. Have you ever been in a discussion with people about issues of faith and they use that tone? Oh, we gotcha. Here's my gotcha question. It's like they got two or three gotcha questions. Jesus' response to these disingenuous debaters is textbook for us to follow. This is great stuff. First, he doesn't play their game. He says, why do you test me? They're testing him. Everybody knows it. He just says, why are you trying to test me? I'm just trying to be here in a relationship. I'm just trying to talk with you but you're trying to test me. So he puts it out in the open what their motives are. In Matthew twenty two eighteen. he actually calls them hypocrites. You guys are hypocrites. So he, you're going to define me falsely. I'm going to define you truthfully. You're trying to catch me in a trap and you're doing it hypocritically because you're supposed to be teachers and you're not teaching. You're trying to destroy me. And that's not, you're saying we want to be nice to everybody and we want to be kind, but you're really trying to destroy people. That's not nice. That's not kind. So he says, bring me a denarius. I love the fact that, all right, he's not going after them. He's not taunting them. He's not trying to escalate the conversation. He's just speaking truth, and he creates a context for everybody in the audience to listen. So he doesn't accept their false praise or their false context or their false definitions. He doesn't do any of it, and he doesn't argue with them either. I think this is interesting. The enemies will flatter to draw out pride. Friends will flatter to draw out kindness. Both of them are flattering, and as Christians, we need to take flattery with a grain of salt, not let it puff our heads up. He says, bring me a denarius. So he reframes the taxes question, and he uses his own words. In 6 AD, 
the Caesar changed this law to where you paid this denarius to Caesar directly. They had different kinds of taxes. This was a poll tax. So when he says, bring me a denarii, denarius, he's likely referring to the poll tax, which was one denarius per year. How much is a denarius? Denarius is a silver coin. It comes from the word deni, which means to have 10. 10 of what? 10 copper asariuses. So it was an hourly wage. You generally made about 10 denarii a day because in this time of history, people worked about 10 hours a day. So you'd make 10 denarii for a day's work. So whatever your hourly rate is, that's what a denarii coin was worth. So for what it's worth, by Jesus's time, it was known that the Romans put less silver in the money. So this was a really contentious thing. Bring me a denarii. And everybody in the audience knew the Romans were cutting the denarii with less and less silver every year. So they were inflating the the coin. This is because Rome was on its downward trend. And one of the things governments will do is they will inflate the value of the money to make it look like things are still okay, even though there isn't value getting put into that money anymore. So everyone knows that the Roman denarii was a, the coin itself was a source of contention. So instead of paying taxes every year, he brings the coin up, which would have maybe been even more inflammatory. His accusers are thinking, oh, he's going right at this. He's going, he's, he's even making it worse when he brings up the denarii. In Gibbons' fall of Rome, he reports the denarii at this point had inflated 20%. So people complain about inflation in America right now. Ah, in Rome, this had been inflated 20%. So massive drop in value for poor people. This makes things really tough on people. It's out of control spending by the Roman government. They're building auditoriums, they're having gladiatorial games, they're doing more and more entertainment and less and less actual like growing of crops. And so this changes the value of the money. It's the most common coin that people had because it was the hourly pay. So Rome after this in the third century switches the silver out completely and makes it a bronze coin. Then Charlemagne changes it and it becomes the new denarius or what he called in the Latin the new penny. So Today, that same coin is what we would call a penny. So think of a day's rate being inflated up from an hourly wage to a penny. And today we're even talking about eliminating the penny altogether. So over time, money inflates. Not a bad thing, but coins are made by governments. That's the point. And this denarius that they're holding historically has a tradition that goes all the way to our penny. And so we look at what's going on and these governments can adjust the value of the money. That's the point of the denarius. So I love how Jesus handles this. Why are taxes so hated? Taxes are so hated and so is this coin because it represents how governments manipulate money. And they always have. This is why I get surprised when people get so struck by, oh, they're doing this to our dollar and they did that and they got off the gold standard back in the 1920s. Yes, governments manipulate money. They always have. This is what they do. He says that I might see it. That means Jesus didn't have one in his pocket. That says a few things. People love Jesus the poor man. Well, he didn't even have a coin to his name. I don't know. He was a carpenter. He had Judas holding the money bag for the group. So, But he doesn't have one in his pocket. So he localizes the discussion. And I think this is great for Christians. Instead of this broad, should we pay taxes or not? He's like, hey, I don't have a denarius on me. Can you give me an actual denarius? And he localizes the discussion to me and you. I'm not talking about everybody in the world. I'm talking about me and you. I'm talking about your heart. So can you give me a denarii? Here's what's funny. Debates over the law should never be hypothetical or exaggerated to the broad level. 
Debates over the law should always have a case where we can apply the law. Otherwise, we're deciding imaginary cases that don't actually exist. And the enemy loves that place because that's where fear can come from. So in this idea of the coin, Jesus makes it clear to the whole crowd that he doesn't have a denarii on him. And you can't tax what you don't have. Right? So verse 16, so they brought it. He's talking to the Herodians and the Pharisees. They brought him a coin. This is interesting. Because he shows that he doesn't have a coin, but they do have a coin. Should there be a coin in the marketplace? Because remember, he just got done kicking all the money changers out of the temple. Why? So they brought it. That I might see it. He just wants to look at it. So directing everyone who did not have one, they're probably pulling the denarii out of their pocket. They're all looking at it. Or none of them have denarii in their pocket for a reason. What did they see when they looked at the coin? Because Jesus, I want to look at it. He's telling the whole crowd, look at the coin. If you have a coin in your pocket right now, pull it out and look at it and see what's on it. Likely, they, it was printed on the mint on Capitoline Hill in Rome. Because when New Caesars came into play, they minted new money with their own face on it. This is just what they did. And as quickly as possible, the Roman money changers would get the old currency out of the system, melt it down, and reprint it in the new system. And it all happened in one mint. That mint was on the Temple of Juno. It was a temple. And it had a mark on it, like our coins do today. It tells us where it was minted. So the minting place of this coin would have been at the Temple of Juno in Rome. Why Juno? Her surname is Monita. Juno Monita. She was a god. Monita is Latin, is the root word for the English word money. Uh, monere is in English, is the, they use the same root word for the word warning or watch over this. So in the English, Christianized English language, they use monere as the root word for monitor. Like when you're on guard and you're on guard duty and you're supposed to monitor that thing, money was to be monitored, not to be loved. And it's rooted in our language, deep. So there's two sides to this denarius, and I love this stuff. The first side has a man's face on it with the text, Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus, the August. In other words, the face you see on here is the son of the divine, the son of God, is what it says on the coin. And it had to be a bit amusing for the true son of God to be... Let me see that coin. Let me look at it. Probably might be why Jesus didn't want to carry that coin in his pocket, right? The side two of the dinar. You flip it over, you'll see a woman seated on a throne. She has an olive branch in one hand. She has a scepter of rule in the other hand. And underneath it, it says Pontifus Maximus, which is the title of the Roman high priest of the Temple of Juno. So it puts the government of Rome, perceived as divine, as, flip the coin, approved by the gods and Juno herself. So it's a claim to godhood. It's a spiritual statement on the denarius. All governments throughout history that have printed coins put something about who they are on that coin. And in Rome, it was a claim to deity that went on that coin. And not uncommon. So this is cool. Their money had a, was a spiritual extension of who they were. And the olive branch was the peace of Rome. If everybody agrees with us, nobody gets hurt. And evil throughout history has always done that. Everything will be fine and good if you just agree with us. No conflicts, no problems. Just throw out your morals and do it our way, and we're all fine. And so the coin says all that, has it on there. It's, a, it's the cosmopolitan secularism of Rome that made them so successful for 800 years. 
It's exactly what they did. Do what we want or face the wrath of Rome. So the fear of Rome went hand in hand with the peace of Rome. They went together. So whose image and description inscription is this? Jesus asked them whose image and he asked them to read the inscription. Why? He wants the whole crowd to hear that that coin is a claim to godhood. It would totally offend the Jews. It's an offensive coin. It's part of why the Jews hated Rome. Because they believe in Yahweh. They believe that Tiberius Caesar is God. Oh my word. It's offensive. Most people in the audience spoke Aramaic. They maybe read some Greek. They did not, in all likelihood, read Latin. The only people in that audience that, pro- that read Latin would have been the Herodians and probably the priests and the scribes that had to deal with that culture. So most people are carrying these denarius around in their pocket unless somebody's translated it for them. And the priests aren't going to translate that because we want to have peace with Rome. We want to get along with Rome. It doesn't really matter what it says on the coin. But by having them read the inscription, they would be condemning themselves. They know that they're trying to trap him, but he's kind of got it flipped already. You read, read what it says on that coin. So that's what he says. Whose image and inscription is this? It says whose image, not face. It doesn't say whose face is that. Who's the, who's the bust? Who's the portrait of? It says whose image is there. Why does he use the word image? Because they're guilty of bringing a graven image into the temple courtyard, and by handing them a coin, they just confess their guilt. They're not supposed to bring images before God. This is why he was kicking the money changers out. They're not, this is wrong. This is God's house, and God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't want to look at them. So if this is the place where his name resides, and they're bringing money into this place, they're bringing that, that, that in there in a way that they're accepting this as an exchange for God to do business. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. Not portrait, use the word image. And in the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Give to the country your coin and you give your life to God. So he applies the law here extremely masterfully. This is brilliant legal argument. They skip all the way around and say, they could have said Caesar's and that's what they say, but they don't read the inscription to the crowd. You see that? They just say whose face it is, but they don't answer his full question. His question was whose image and inscription is this? So they don't read the inscription. I imagine a long, painful silence. They just go, Caesar's. Jesus just waits. There are two parts to that question. You're not going to answer it? Maybe the whole crowd is there. Imagine a painful silence. Jesus is just waiting for what the inscription says. I'm sure the other people are like sharing and knowing, look, they all know what it says and they're not going to read it in front of this crowd. No way. It would start a riot in the temple courtyard. I wonder if Jesus even asked them, are you going to read it or not? Are you going to read what it says? So if they read it, they'd have to admit that they just brought in something that was entirely offensive into the temple courtyard, which everyone would then see them do it. Their silence is, again, they're hiding something or they're unbelievably ignorant, which is hard to believe. So Jesus doesn't accuse them publicly. Again, he lets it go. He knows their sin. They know he knows his sin, and he doesn't call it out. He just moves on. He publicly forgives, chapter 11, verse 24. He just forgives it, and he continues to teach and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. He just lets it go, like he did with the woman who was um, having adultery, and he just says, go and sin no more. From the first coming of Jesus, it's about forgiveness and move forward with your life without continuing to do what you were doing. Stop it. 
Render there is to give away, to pay off a debt, to return or restore. Uh, they accept his authority to use the coins, so you owe his coins back to him. If Caesar wants his coins back, they're his coins. And this is where we tend to take this verse and pick it up. If we like the benefits of our government, we're obliged to pay them taxes for it. You like the roads you drive on? You like that we don't get attacked by the Canadians every other day? Then our government's doing something right. We have power lines that come to our houses. Well, that's private utility companies. In general, we live in peace and safety and we pay taxes for it. We pay incredible taxes for it. We pay more now in taxes than they did before the Revolutionary War. But we pay them because we have safety. In the Revolutionary War, King George wasn't providing safety, right? So in life, we owe a debt to our government. We are born and we owe a debt that we were born in a safe place. And in a spiritual life, we also have a debt to pay, render. The day we're born, we have a debt to pay in that we're selfish little flesh babies. And we grow up as selfish little flesh babies until we hit Sunday school or our parents or somebody that says, no, you can't do that anymore. And then we have to, we grow up and we have this duty or this debt to pay. Caesar should not be in God's house. And that's the sense, but sin shouldn't be in our life either. But here's the reality. There's that coin in the temple courtyard. And here's the other reality. Here's sin in your heart. And we wake up to that. So there's answers, but he re redirects them. He reshapes them. He doesn't accept their definitions. And he gives them a very clear, masterful legal answer, which is if they rendered to God what they should, they shouldn't have been under Roman rule in the first place. That's the Old Testament. If they follow the law of God, they wouldn't be under the oppression of Rome. So it's a spiritual issue, not a Roman coin issue. Rendering to God is a response to oppressive government. Egypt wouldn't let them go worship. The response to that was to go worship anyways. We give to God what's God's. And in that, God saved the Israelites out of Egypt. That's the very beginning of Israel in the first place. The word God that he uses there is interesting. He doesn't use Elohim. He uses the Greek word theos. means supreme God. It would be a word that even applies to Romans or Gentiles. They would understand that word as the God of all gods. He doesn't just say a God. He does the capital G God. And hopefully it's translated that way in your Bible. We pay our taxes and respect our government as long as it come, doesn't come into conflict with our service to God. The day they start telling us we can't meet and gather and worship and sing and eat barbecue is the day we defy them. So the government has and can expect compliance from Christians, but there is a line for non-compliance that's crystal clear. When a government crosses that line, there's an image of God stamped on us from Genesis 1. And so there's a line where the, the power of the coin has its limits. This is masterful in that this is the first time in history and the ideas of Jesus are that there are two kingdoms. We owe our government one thing, we owe our God another thing, and he splits those two things. So at this point, Israel was, a, was walking around like they were still a theocracy, but they had Rome over the top of them. Jesus' thing is, uh-uh, God comes over the top of Rome. And so by saying, give to God what is God's, it's a very similar question to the authority question of John the Baptist. Who's in charge? And he artfully goes and says, I'm not going to, you, you aren't answering me, so I'm not going to answer you. But on this one, they're like, who pays taxes? And he's like, well, you didn't read the inscription, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to say, give to God what is God's. I don't owe you more of an explanation than that. And like a good teacher, he doesn't over-explain, like I am. So they don't fully answer, and Jesus just moves on, just like John 8, 8, 11, go and sin no more. He changes the framing, the dialogue, the whole thing, and he points out that the coin is marked, and the taxes that they're paying 
are one thing and giving God his due is another. So as godly believers, we don't live for the world and we don't live for the money that the government has printed and the government can manipulate. That's a tough thing because a lot of people live for their money, but that money has value based on governmental decisions. Don't put your life value in that money. It's not the right place. They think they got Jesus. He just points out their hypocrisy and has them again not answering his questions. So with John the Baptist, they ran into a corner. With the vine dressers, they run into a corner. With the money, they don't answer his question fully. So three times, they haven't been able to answer questions. Three times, Jesus has given them an answer that's very consistent with the word of God. They have the option to help the money changers get out of there. They don't bother to do that. Instead, they argue with him. And they marveled at him, this passage ends. Read that as a public dropping of jaws. Like they can't believe how he's handling this stuff. Like they thought they had him in a trap and he was, it was almost like he had set it up for them to be in a trap. He flips it in a sentence. And really Jesus does this because he's the son of God. He's simply at a different level. He's the owner. He's not the servant taking care of the vineyard. He's the owner of the vineyard. And he has a masterful use of it. It's also, don't miss the prophetic connection. The connection here to uh, verse 11, this word marvelous in the Greek, it's thumazo, and I'll end on this thought. It means to wonder or to admire. It's one step short of worshiping. And it's a simple truth, too. This is direct, clear, resolute teaching, and that should be appreciated. Wow, that's clearer to me than it used to be. I have more understanding than I did before. Thumazo. Man, I really wonder about that. I have to unpack that a little bit. It's the opposite of finding fault in the Lamb of God. It's marvel instead. Instead of finding flaws and problems and arguments, you're like, I just feel like I got clarity when I'm walking out of this. Pay, to, pay Caesar what's Caesar's, pay God what's God. It's super easy. I can live with that. So try as they might. They can't find fault in his truthfulness, his worthiness, his handling of the word. So the Pharisees and the Herodians leave without finding fault in the lamb. The next up, notice it's the Sadducees. They're all going to take turns. And so next week we'll get into the Sadducees, and they're going to test Jesus too. And we're going to again see just Jesus absolutely owns them. And it's complete and total, and they will leave with their jaws on the floor. Amen? All right. Good Jesus arguing day today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much that you lead the way, that we don't have to. Lord, we're trying to understand this idea of not finding vengeance, not finding fault, um, but still standing on your word and doing it with confidence and boldness. Lord, we lift you up, we lift your name up, and we do it seriously. Lord, we don't want to have any confusion about where our heart is, and money becomes one of those things that we can often put our heart into and, and dreams and plans and orchestrations, Lord, and you ask us to put you first, and you've asked for our heart, mind, and soul. And Lord, we give you those things freely. If there's anyone in this room that hasn't chosen to follow you, Lord, I pray they do it right now. They take a moment and they just give their lives. Lord, we know that we're sinners. We know we've fallen short of your grace, and we know that you've paid a price. Lord, you made the vineyard. And Lord, we just know that we want to render our lives back to you because we owe them to you. And it's been too long that we've taken charge of our own life. So Lord, have it, take it, use us as you will until the day we die. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.